Amen. I say it all the time. I don't like following things like that. How in the world am I supposed to impress you after, after that? <laughs> well, I'll do it this way. Um, we here at First Southern value prayer at a very high level. Uh, and so we're going to spend some, some intense time, some, some intentional uh, time in prayer. And today, we're going we're gonna to spend some time in prayer by going through uh, a prayer by a man named Carl Barth. Uh, he has a book called 50 Prayers, um, and, and he has a section in it that the prayers are specifically focused on the Christmas season. And I thought the, the excerpt uh, from his book for this particular Sunday uh, was beautiful and just uh, wonderful for, for where we're at in celebrating the birth of our Savior. Uh, so will you join me? I'm just going to read Karl Barth's prayer today. It's, it's not what I usually do, but I think it just fits today so well. So you, will you join me in prayer? Dear Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, make good what we fail to do well. Even this worship service in all of its inadequacy and the many other Christmas celebrations that we go to do, we pray that you would bless them and make them good for your glory. You can make water flow from the rock, transform water into wine, and raise up children for, for Abraham from these very stones, all in the great inconceivable faithfulness that you have sworn to your people and have kept again and again. We thank you for that faithfulness that shines in the gospel and that we may hold on to it in all circumstances. Lord, we pray that you would not allow us to harden ourselves to it. We pray that you would continually awaken us from the sleep of indifference. Do not tire of continually guiding us back to your path. Give to the rulers and those who carry responsibility for public opinion the new wisdom, the new patience, and decisiveness that are required today in order to fashion and preserve justice for all in your good world. We ask that whatever is done in our city, our church, our university, and our schools may not happen without your light or without your blessing for the true well-being of all and to your glory. We ask you above all for the many whom it must be difficult to celebrate Christmas now, for the poor, both known and unknown, for those who are aging alone, for those who are physically and mentally ill, and for the prisoners, that despite everything, it may be a little brighter for them this Christmas season. Finally, we beg you concerning those of us both near and far away, as well as for all people, that you may hold your hand graciously over our lives and over our passings. Lord, have mercy on us. Your name be praised now and forever. Amen. Welcome to First Southern. We're so glad that you're here with us. If you have a Bible or an app, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 1. 
The book of Matthew, chapter 1. Now, if you don't have a Bible or an app with you, uh, there are Bibles in the pews around you. Feel free to grab one of those. If you're not familiar where the book of Matthew is at, it's in a section called the New Testament, which is kind of the last one-third of the Bible. Uh, The best way to find it is to go a few pages into the front, into the table of contents, look for the big section that's labeled New Testament. Matthew is the very first book of that section. Uh, So that's the book that you're looking for this morning, Matthew chapter 1. Let me also say, if you don't have a Bible, please, at the end of the service, take one of those Bibles out of the pew and walk out the door with it today. We here at First Southern want everyone to have a Bible at home that they can read and study and reference and check what I'm saying. So please, take one of those Bibles. Let that, in this Christmas season, be our gift to you this morning. Now, I want to introduce to you someone from my family who is very famous. He was written about by Mark Twain in two of Mark Twain's book. Humphrey Bogart played him in a a movie in 1940 called Virginia City. And he's my ancestor, my relative. I'm going to pop a picture up here. His name's John A. Merle. Kind of a, that's the only known accurate picture of him. Uh, And let me tell you why he's famous. He is famous for being a horse and slave thief. Isn't that great? He's known for being a steamboat pirate along the Mississippi River. He's known very much for being a a government conspirator. Uh, It was known that he had a conspiracy to actually take over the city of New Orleans. Isn't that wild? He, he owned a network. He was the head gangster of a network of, of criminals called the Mystic Clan back in the early 1800s. Man, I've got so much to be proud of, don't I? <laughs> Let me tell you what Mark Twain said about this man. Mark Twain wrote about John Merle uh, in a book uh, called... Uh, Let me find it. Life on the Mississippi. And Mark Twain wrote this. When he traveled, his usual disguise was that of of an itinerant preacher. Ooh, this is getting juicy. (laughs) And it is said that his discourses were very soul-moving, interesting to the hearers, so much that they forgot to look after their horses, which were carried away by his confederates while he preached. Don't worry, I don't have people outdoors checking your cars right now. John A. Merle, not exactly someone to be proud of. If you go and read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, there's a chapter, I think it's chapter 25, where Huck and Tom have have run away and they're searching for treasure, uh, and they go and hide in this house, and there's this character, it's not exactly the the type of character that uh, we, we relish today in our society. But his name was Injun Joe, and Injun Joe was a criminal, and Injun Joe uh, pulled up some baseboards in this house and discovered treasure. And the treasure in Mark Twain's book is called Merle's Treasure. That's my ancestor, ladies and gentlemen. Don't I have so much to be proud of? A guy that went around preaching from town to town, and while he preached, his fellow criminals robbed everyone blind. But he apparently was a pretty good preacher. He said, Mark Twain says, soul-moving. 
I, I, I'll, I'll own that one, maybe. <laughs> but isn't it interesting that we look back at our ancestry and we think, oh, look at what we have here. Look at, look at the good and the bad. We're going to look today at Jesus's ancestry. And you may go, oh, I know where you're going. You're going to read a genealogy. You're going to read a boring list of names. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it. Because it is. It's a long, long list of names. There are two genealogies given in the New Testament. One's in Matthew 1. The other one is in Luke chapter 3. So let me give you some highlights of the one that's found in, in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, Luke goes from Jesus. He starts with Jesus and he lists the ancestors of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know my genealogy, my, my family lineage. I don't know that family tree that well, do you? Some of you may. Some of you may have done the work and traced it back. Well, Luke traced it back all the way to Adam. He traces Jesus' physical genetic descent. So, so I'll get back to what Matthew does with it here in just a moment. Luke's focus is on the natural order of descent uh, for Jesus' lineage. He uses a different lineage from the one that Matthew has. So Matthew, we'll look at this in just a moment, so don't turn there just yet, uh, or we're going to be there, but just anyways. Luke traces Jesus back to one of David's sons named Nathan. Now Matthew traces it back to King Solomon, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Nathan one of King David's sons, is listed in 2 Samuel 5, if you want to go and, and look up the history there. Now, it's not unusual in this day and time for a person to be able to track multiple lineages back to one ancestor. So think about it for a moment. If you were an Israelite in Jesus' day and time, you could probably trace multiple family lines back to Abraham, couldn't you? Because the entire Jewish People came from that one man, from Abraham. And so it's not unusual for a Jewish person to be able to trace multiple lines back to a certain ancestor. Jesus, we know from Luke and Matthew, had at least two lineages that went directly back to King David. And that's important. I'll talk about that in just a moment. So the cool thing about this is Luke was written, Luke wrote his book somewhere in the early 60s A.D., so you go back, they think it was written somewhere between 60 and 63 A.D. And in that day and time, the temple was still around. And a person could literally go to the temple and talk to a specific priest and say, I want to see the scrolls of all the lineage of this person. They tracked every birth and every line of lineage for every Jewish person. They were, those lines, those records were kept in the temple. And so Luke writes his book and writes this lineage, and so does Matthew, at a time when anybody could have gone back and checked to see if what they listed was actually accurate or not. Isn't that interesting? They could go back and trace, okay, Luke lists this guy and this guy and this guy. And they had the scrolls, the, the records, for somebody to go back and check that. Now, Luke does that, but what's interesting, a little side note, is in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed along with all of those records. So today, a Jewish person cannot definitively track their lineage all the way back 
to before the temple was destroyed. And here's why this is important. The Messiah was promised to come from King David. There's not a person, there's not a Jewish person alive today that can definitively prove that they are a descendant of King David. Matter of fact, nobody past 70 AD could definitively prove that they were an ancestor of King David, or a descendant of King David. The Messiah had to have come before 70 AD because the records were wiped out. Such beautiful proof of the Messiahhood, the, the Christhood of Jesus. So, that's Luke. Now let me geek out on you, nerd out on you a little bit on Matthew. So take your, book, your Bibles, your apps, Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1 tells us Matthew's intentions. So in verse 1 of Matthew 1 it says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember, I told you that it was promised, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come from David's line. That's what Matthew is telling us right here. He, in the first sentence, is saying, I'm going to prove to you here and now that David meets, fulfills this prophecy, that he was a son of David. And so he traces his lineage not through specific... His focus is not the physical descent. His focus in Matthew is to look and prove the actual descent of kinghood. So, so Matthew traces, if you go and look back at, what, at the names that Matthew lists here, Matthew lists all the kings. So from David to Jesus, he's listing all of the kings. So King Solomon, King Solomon's son, his son, etc., 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 all through the kingly line through David and Solomon. That was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, by the way, that, that the Messiah would come through King David. So he traces the legal royal line of succession. Matthew, or Luke was just focused on genetic descent. Matthew is focused on royal uh, descent for the kinghood, the royal line of succession. But what's interesting about Matthew, Matthew skips several generations. He actually pulls his genealogy from the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 3, or 1 Chronicles, chapter 3. He structures it in rotation. So look now with me at verse 17. Matthew 1, 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Matthew intentionally built in three rotations of 14. And I could spend an entire message just talking about the importance of the numbers. Basically, numbers held a lot of importance to Jewish people. Every number that you see in the Bible has some kind of significance tied to it. It's important for a reason. Uh, and I could go into this, but I'm not going to because I don't have the time today. So, that is the, those are the genealogies given in Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 1. Now, I've done all my geeking out, all of my nerding out on you. Now let me talk to you about why this genealogy is important to us today. Because everything in God's Word has importance. Everything in God's Word has value. Even a long, long, long list of names. I'm not going to list all these for two reasons. First off, it's a long list. Second of all, I will butcher these names. I promise you that. 
Uh, I will not do them justice. But there are some of these verses that I do want to highlight. So look in verse 3 with me. I want you to notice a handful of names here. Verse 3 says, Judah, so Judah was uh, one of the ancient ancestors. He was one of Joseph's brothers. If you think back to Genesis chapters 38 through 50. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, why am I highlighting this verse? I'm highlighting this verse because remember, a few weeks ago I mentioned Matthew's audience, who he's writing to, are Jewish people. He's not writing necessarily to Greeks or, or those who don't have a Jewish background. He's writing to Jewish people. So why in the world would he list a woman? The Jewish people did not consider a woman uh, able to receive inheritance from a family. Only a son could do that. And so why in the world would Matthew point out Tamar in verse 3? I don't know. Let's keep going. Look with me in verse 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. There's another woman listed there. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Let's keep going. Let's look at another one. Look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Are you noticing a pattern here? All of these women are women that we find throughout the Old Testament of God's Word. But here's the interesting fact. All of these women were surrounded by controversy or with difficulties. So let me give you some highlights here for just a moment. Tamar in verse 3. We looked at verse 3. It lists Tamar. Uh, She was the, the mother of twins. If you go back to Genesis chapter 38, Tamar was married or was about to get married to one of the sons of Jacob. And some bad stuff happened, things didn't go right. Or no, not Jacob, Judah, sorry. One of the sons of Judah. Things didn't go right, that son ended up dying, and the son that was supposed to take her as his wife, Judah never made that happen. And so Tamar, after waiting and waiting and waiting for the promise of Judah to take care of what he told her he would do, Tamar goes and disguises herself and ends up sleeping with Judah himself and has twins from that union. Talk about scandal, right? Talk about controversy. Now look, think about the next woman that's listed. It's Rahab in verse 5. Who's Rahab? Well, if you go read Joshua chapter 2. Joshua is the book of the Bible where the Israelites have been roaming in the desert under Moses' leadership for 40 years. Joshua, Moses passes and Joshua is the one that leads them into the land of Israel. And the first city uh, that they you know, it, it really focus on them overtaking is the city of Jericho. Well, what do they do in Jericho? They send a couple of spies in to kind of check out the fortitude and see what they have to do. They go in, they can't get back out because they're discovered as spies. And Rahab is a prostitute that has a house on the wall. She hides the men 
When the soldiers come looking, she sends them the wrong direction, lets them slip over the wall to escape. And those those spies promise her, we will watch out for you when the Lord delivers this city into our hands. And sure enough, Rahab is the one that's left surviving her and her family after Jericho falls. And Rahab ends up marrying one of the descendants, one of the ancestors, sorry, one of the ancestors of King David. Rahab, a foreign woman, was, a ancest- was an ancestor of the king, the great king. Now look with me. Later in verse 5, we have Ruth. Now why is Ruth controversial? If you've read the, the book of Ruth, it's a beautiful story, right? It's this story of this woman and her family, her husband and her two sons. They, they leave Israel and go to a place called Moab because there's a great famine. Uh, and the, the, all the men die. They get the two sons marry and they die and her husband dies. And she decides to go back to Israel because the famine's over. And one of those daughter-in-laws, Ruth, follows her back to Israel. And through a set of circumstances, she ends up marrying a man named Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth have children. And those, one of those children ends up becoming one of, Jesus, one of King David's great-grandfathers or grandfathers. Now, why is Ruth controversial, though? Well, here's the interesting thing. Ruth, like I mentioned, was from Moab. She was a Moabite. And if you go into Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, listen to what God says. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter my assembly forever. But wait. Ruth was a Moabite, which means her children had Moabite ancestry, which means King David was a Moabite, which means that later down the road, Jesus had Moabite ancestry. Yet in Deuteronomy 23, we're told that a Moabite can never forever in the entire lineage of that Moabite's family can ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Yet, if you were here a couple weeks ago, I made the argument that Jesus was the temple. He didn't just enter the temple. He himself was the temple that gives us access to our Lord. Isn't that interesting? Then, of course, you go into verse 6 and you read about Bathsheba. That's the reference to the wife of Uriah. And if you go into 2 Samuel, verse 11, you're going to read about this very controversial account of King David sleeping with a woman who was not his wife, uh, then trying to cover up, and when he couldn't cover it up, he had the husband killed. Very controversial. A really sad story, but but something we can learn from. Yet Bathsheba's son is Solomon, and Solomon becomes the next king, and one of Solomon's lines ends up leading to Jesus. Listen to me closely on this. All of these women were moral outcasts or were surrounded by scandal, every single one of them. Either they weren't worthy in light or in view of the Jewish people, or they had some wild scandal that surrounded their life. Hear me on this. If you don't hear anything this morning, hear me on this. Jesus came through and he came for the outcast. Jesus came through a lineage of people who were outcasts, 
who were not deemed worthy by society in Jesus' own day and time. Yet, through that lineage, Jesus came to save all the outcasts. And here's the crazy fact. Every single person who has ever been born on the face of the earth is an outcast. Outside of Jesus himself, we are all outcasts. The book of Romans tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all unworthy. We are all not deserving of what God has given us. But because Jesus came through the people who seemed unworthy or who were deemed unworthy, He came through that line of unworthiness to save those of us who are not worthy. None of us in this room could earn salvation. None of us could do enough good deeds, give enough money, help enough people to earn our way into heaven. We can't do that. There's not enough good in the world that you could do to make your way into heaven. The only way into heaven is through what Jesus Christ did for us. That is the only way. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life because we couldn't. The very fact that he came from outcasts for the outcasts shows us exactly what we were unable to do. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And ultimately, at the end of that life, after teaching and doing so much for us, he died a death. Even though he was perfectly innocent, he died a death on a cross, shedding his blood so that every single one of us, outcasts, so that we could be brought into his family, so that we would be outcasts no more. That should be good news to every person. You see, here's the issue. Why are we outcasts? Every single one of us have disobeyed God. Every single one of us have done something that is in disobedience to God's perfect will, His perfect law, His perfect plan. Most of us have done something against that today. But Jesus takes us in our unworthiness, and he makes us worthy. You see, we can't stand in the presence of God. Jesus' sacrifice, again, makes us favored in God's eyes. He lived that perfect life and died that death so that we could be saved. And ultimately, after that death on the third day, he rose from the grave to prove and have victory over sin and death. And then he ascended into heaven and he right now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. He came for each and every one of us when we were at our lowest, when we were at our deadest. You see, your past does not define you. My ancestor, John A. Merle, does not define me. I don't care what he did because I've got Jesus. And Jesus can redeem anything in my past. And here's the great thing. It also doesn't matter what I've done because God can even take my mess 
He can take my mistakes. He can take my disobedience. And he can wipe that slate clean. That's how much Jesus loves me. And guys, listen to me on this. That's how much Jesus loves you. There is nothing in your past that could keep you from the love of Jesus. There's nothing that you could have done. There's no evil that you could have committed. There's no bad thing that you could have accomplished that would separate you from Jesus' love. His love wipes everything away. His love makes us no longer outcasts, but makes us part of His family. So hear me on this. If your guilt is weighing you down, if your shame of your past is holding you back, please hear me that Jesus has taken that guilt. Jesus has carried that shame from you. You don't have to bear it any longer. If you feel like an outcast, please hear me on this. You are welcome in the family of Jesus. Your past doesn't matter. All that matters is the love that Jesus has for you. And hear me, if you are a follower of Jesus, hallelujah. Don't live in that guilt. Don't live in that shame. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can have hope. You can have the hope, the life-changing hope that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And if you've got questions about that, if you want to know more about what Jesus did for you, and you want to know what that life-changing hope and a life-changing relationship with Jesus, if you want to know what that looks like and what it means, my name is Pastor Chad. I'm going to be right here after service, up here at the front. I would love to talk to you about that. I would love the, to, to answer your questions if you want to know more. But you can have your guilt taken. You can have your shame wiped because the love of Jesus wipes everything away. Your past doesn't matter. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how much He loves us. And thank you that His love is so powerful that it takes away all of our past. That our past is completely meaningless in light of the love of Jesus. So Lord, I pray right now for every follower in this room that You would help them to fully understand Your love and how it can change their lives. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know You. And I pray the same thing, that that love of Jesus would impact their lives. You would speak through your Holy Spirit to each and every one of us this morning through your love. God, thank you. We don't deserve it. We certainly can't earn it. Yet you gave it. Thank you so much for who you are. We lift all of this in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now. If you uh, need to pray, the altar's open. We invite you to come. If you've got questions, again, my name's Pastor Chad. I would love the opportunity uh, to talk to you more about what a life-changing relationship with Jesus looks like. Let's stand and let's respond.